Our Father, we do ask now that as we have gathered to your, as, together as your people to sing, to pray, to hear your word read, to fellowship with one another, that now you would give us that grace of grace to hear your voice, O Christ, in your word. We pray that you would enable us to see your glory to by faith have eyes to see beyond today into this great scene that you take us in Matthew 25. For those of us who have already received those spiritual eyes, may the vision become yet clearer this morning. For those who see with physical eyes and yet are in darkness, may today the light of the glory of Christ shine in their heart by your infinite grace and mercy. Be with us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, open your Bibles once again this morning to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, as we finish up this portion of Matthew's gospel that is following the teaching ministry of Jesus, just before he enters into the account of the last days of his life as he heads to the cross, where he'll give himself as an atonement for the sin of his people. And as we come to Matthew 25, we began last week in verse 31 looking at this great scene of the final return of Christ to earth. And it is a scene of judgment. It is a scene of discernment between those who are Christ, who belong to Him, and those who are not. We began last week in verses 31 through 33. We'll look at verses 34 through 46 this morning. And as was mentioned then, this is now Christ coming all the way to earth. The beginning of this glory of His return was mentioned back in verse 29 of Matthew 24. And now it's completed as He comes, having ascended or descended from heaven, and sits on His glorious throne. As verse 31 tells us, He comes in glory and all the angels with Him, and then He will sit on His glorious throne. This is truly a majestic scene, and it is bringing to a close this age in human history, this age as we know it, and it is at the beginning part, the preparation and the introduction of the next phase, which will be his thousand-year reign on earth, on the throne of David as king, in fulfillment of the promises of the prophets. He has at this point, when we come into verse 31, already returned in the glory of Matthew or Revelation 19, having destroyed all of the enemies, the armies of Antichrist mounted up against him in rebellion. They are destroyed. They are annihilated. And now he brings all those who remain of the nations before him to render judgment. And he, in this judgment, then separates the righteous from the wicked. He separates the righteous from the wicked. Now this idea of judgment and of separating the wicked from among the righteous has been a consistent theme throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Indeed, after the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he said that some will say to him, Lord, Lord, did we not do these things in your name? And he will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. He will make a separation between those who did the will of his Father and those who did not do the will of his Father. He's separating out the wicked Jews 
who were designed to originally inherit the blessing of the promises, even the one we read about to Abraham today. And yet they will be excluded in chapter 8, and those will come from the east and the west and sit at the table of Abraham and enjoy the feast and the blessings of those promises in Christ. He did in Matthew 13, anticipating this return of Christ, the end of the age, there give us a very drastic and stark stark picture of this separation. He says in verse 41, actually in verse 40, he says, So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. And will throw them into the furnace of fire. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He said in verse 49, So it will be at the end of the age the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous. He said in chapter 21, That he was going to take the kingdom from those leaders and give it to a people producing the fruit of it. Making a distinction. He said in chapter 22, he identified those who would come into the kingdom and yet not really be clothed with the garments of salvation. Those who were falsely in the kingdom and he will remove them as the dinner guest in the parable of the king's wedding feast. In chapter 24, we saw that he is going to make a separation on his return. One will be taken and one will be left. He makes a separation between the wicked slave who did not anticipate and take seriously the accountability that he would have before his returning master and the one who did. We saw the distinction between the virgins, five who were foolish and five who were wise. They were separated. The wise ones were allowed into the feast of the king. The foolish were shut out. We saw a distinction between those slaves who had received the talent and were faithful and the one who was identified as a wicked and a lazy slave and excluded from the blessings of the kingdom. So separation has been a key theme throughout the Gospel of Matthew. He will exclude the wicked from his kingdom and indeed give it as an inheritance to the righteous. And now this then is the final moment of separation, anticipated by all of those parables. And it is that final separation that comes when He now returns from heaven, physically, bodily, to the earth, to establish His kingdom. Physically present on the earth. We noted last week then the first point of this section, the presentation of the King. The presentation of the king. And here identified as the son of man. A title revealing both his deity, his majesty as God. That he shares fully in the authority of God. He's the one who forgives sins. The one who comes in the glory of his father and his angels. It's also a title that refers to him as a man. Refers to him as the one who fully shares in humanity. He teaches as a man. He suffers as a man. He dies as a man. And here as a man, he will rule over the kingdom of God. And it is a glorious kingdom. He is a king, as we said, who comes in chapter 16 in the glory of his father. 
Here in Matthew 25, 31, he comes in his glory. That is his own glory that he shares equally with the Father. It is a glory that includes the myriads of myriads in his retinue of angels who are coming to do his bidding as he returns to the earth. And he sits on his throne of glory. The full majesty in the words of Zechariah 14.9 as the one who is king over all of the earth. And his first act as a king then is to separate the righteous from the wicked. It is a separation that is final. It is a separation that is with perfect knowledge and perfect justice. And it is the only separation among men that really matters. Of all the distinctions that we make as men, the one that is important is the distinction that Christ makes here. The forgiven and the unforgiven. The righteous and the unrighteous. The sheep and the goats. Now this morning, Jesus gives us the foundation on which this separation is made. And so we're going to consider the final two points. The pronouncement of the king and the placement of the king. Before we do that though, let's read our passage once more. And then we'll look at it more closely. Beginning in verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right, and the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those on His right, Come, You who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord... When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothed you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they say they themselves also will answer, Lord... When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Look back up at verse 34 and let's notice then first the pronouncement of the king. And the first pronouncement here is not one of judgment, one of discernment, but not one of judgment. It is a pronouncement of blessing. A pronouncement of blessing. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
absolutely an incredible statement. Incredible statement. Certainly more than we can do justice to this morning. But let's consider first then that this is a pronouncement that is made by the king. And notice there what he says right at the beginning. Then the king will say to them. So he has now gone from the son of man and identified him as the king. Interestingly, this is the only time that Jesus will directly refer to himself as a king as he does here. This was already hinted at in verse 31 because he came to sit on his glorious throne. And a throne is what a king sits on and that is what he has come to sit on. That the king is the son of man marks him as the king who rules in absolute power and glory and authority. The authority of God, the promised son of David, as we noticed last week. The one that was anticipated by the prophets The primary background for this is Daniel 7. I kept looking in the night visions and behold the clouds of heaven and one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given a dominion, glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. He is that king. He is the great king. He is, beloved, our king. This is the king we serve. This is the king we know if you are a Christian. And he speaks as he's sitting on his throne and from his throne of glory to those who are on his right. These are the sheep. And we noted that the idea of God's people as His sheep finds its grounding in the Old Testament. The people were God's sheep. He was their shepherd. In terms of the revelation of Christ, we think of His words in John 10 where He says, I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. I am the good shepherd who lays down my life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd who calls my own those given to me by the Father. And this is, again, an incredible scene of glory and a strong contrast between the appearance of Jesus that is before them now, one who is meek and lowly, one who is a man of sorrows, one who is soon to go to the cross, and yet he is not that man of sorrows here. He is the king who is returning in glory. But notice Though in His glory, His tenderness yet still to a sheep, He spoke tenderly to them on earth, Come to Me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'm meek, I'm gentle, I'm humble in heart, I have an easy yoke. And here He speaks, though in glory, with that same tenderness of a king to a sheep, to His own. Listen to how this was captured by one old writer. Before Christ is called the Son of Man, now the King, who is not only the King of saints, but King of the whole world, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Judge of all the earth, He appearing in glory and majesty, sitting on a throne of glory, being attended with His glorious angels and all nations gathered before Him. Here He calls the righteous and bespeaks them in the most tender and endearing manner. And with the majesty of a king and the authority of a judge to come near unto Him with intrepidity and confidence and take possession for a glorious kingdom. And so He is here as a king, and yet to His own and to His sheep, 
He is a king of tenderness, of majesty, and yet of grace. And he pronounces again on them a blessing. And he says, come those blessed of my father. And you can only imagine the joy of those sheep as they're hearing this. Because as they're standing before this majestic king on his glorious throne. And what they hear is not condemnation, but a word of blessing from this majestic king. And notice what he says about the source of this blessing. The source of the blessing. It comes from the father. It comes from the Father. And this is as Jesus has done throughout His ministry. He delights in giving honor and glory to the Father. To the Father who is the source of these blessings. It is the Father who maintains the place of authority and primacy within the relationship of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Here it is the blessing that has its source in the Father. The Father of the Son. In Matthew 7, 21, those who were judged were judged for not doing the will of my Father who is in heaven. It is before the Father that Jesus in chapter 10 will acknowledge those who acknowledged Him. It is the Father He praises in chapter 11 for hiding the knowledge of Himself and of Christ from Son and revealing it to others. He says, yes, Father, it was well-pleasing in your sight. In the next chapter, he says, I will drink this again with you as he's around the table with his disciples in my Father's kingdom. And here it is, the Father's kingdom that the Son reigns over by God's design, eternal design. And he gives the blessing then and pronounces it of the Father to those who belong to him and to Christ. Come, receive the blessing of my Father And indeed, the reality is, and the wonder is, that my Father here is our Father, is our Father. Those who are in Christ know the Father as the Son knows the Father. As adopted children who cry out to Him, Abba, Father, because of the Son of the Spirit in them. This is not some kind of stale kind of declaration, but this is the declaration of the Father to those who are His true children. This is the declaration of the Son who is called Himself the brother of all of those who are there. This is an intimate and a tremendously tender and gracious pronouncement of the Son. And indeed, you can imagine the thrill of those who are here identified as sheep. And whatever they suffered, whatever they endured for the name of Christ, particularly while under that evil rule of the Antichrist which preceded this event, whatever ridicule, whatever shame, whatever fear they tolerated is now met with the blessing of the Father. And whatever they suffered, whatever they lost in the world, would seem as nothing to them now as they stand before the glory of the King. No doubt they would feel like Paul anticipated in Romans 8, 18, where he says, I don't even consider the sufferings of this world worthy to be compared with the glory, the glory that awaits God's true children. Mark this. Future glory is the present strength and hope of God's children. Future glory is the present strength and hope of God's children. And here it is the realization of that glory. Notice also regarding the source. It was from the foundation of the world. 
It was prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It was determined by the Father to give this kingdom from before creation. And beloved, that shows that this is a sovereign work of God. Even as we mentioned in the prayer or in the interaction of God to Abraham, it was a nation, I will bless you, I will make a great nation, I will give you a sign, I will fulfill my word, I will complete my promise. And indeed, it is a promise that was determined before the foundation of the world. In terms of our election unto salvation, we're very familiar with Paul's words in Ephesians 1 where he says... Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. He had predestined us to adoption as sons. And here it is to those sons that they are now receiving the kingdom. And I want us just to notice one, one very important point here before moving on. And it is this. It is an obvious point, but it is one we would be careful to notice. It is this. That God has a purpose in creating the world. Grasp that. That's, that's not just an offhanded kind of comment. God has a purpose in creating the world. That goes absolutely contrary to everything in our secular culture today. Absolutely contrary. Contrary to everything that is taught to children in school. Absolutely contrary to that. Contrary to a secular worldview and the premise of evolution that we did not just come into being. We don't just exist. We're not just here. God has a purpose. God has a purpose. And it was here to give a kingdom to a people whom he chose out before the foundation of the world. And I would suggest if your thoughts do not rise above this earth and your interest and motivations rise above the things of this world, there is darkness yet in your soul. This is the hope of God's children, that there is a kingdom that is promised to them. Our culture, under the influence of the God of this world, wants to drown us in the mundane and the passing pleasures of this world. And yet God says, no, there is a purpose. And it was to create a kingdom and to give a kingdom to a people that he will call out to faith in his son to reign with Him, to be under His righteous rule and authority, and to see His glory. It is a kingdom that will destroy everything that opposes Him. As Paul says, He must reign until He has put all enemies under His feet. And then He will hand over the kingdom to God the Father. This is that kingdom. This is God's purpose. And then will come the new heavens and the new earth. This is, beloved, a Christian worldview. This is the lens through which we view everything in life, not only on a macro scale in terms of the nations, but in a micro sense in terms of our very own lives. There is a sovereign God who created with a purpose, and He will bring it to pass. And here it is to give a kingdom to His people. Notice the substance of the blessing. The source is the Father from the foundation of the world. And the substance of the blessing is this, 
As was already mentioned, it is a kingdom. It is a kingdom. Now, if this then is the blessing, if this is the glory that his children are to hope for, what is this kingdom? Jesus has spoken much of it. He announced it from the beginning of his ministry that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is a kingdom that is of a different nature than the kingdoms of this world. That's why Christ wasn't lured into Satan's temptation when he showed him the glory of the kingdoms of this world. No, the kingdom that Christ came to purchase and will receive is of a different nature than that. It is a kingdom where the effects of sin are removed. That was a foretaste of when he banished disease and demons and blindness and so forth from the crowds that came to him. It is a kingdom that's marked by grace and righteousness. All of those who live perfectly, the Beatitudes in chapter 5. It's a kingdom where God's will is done without question and absolutely and fully and completely. It's a kingdom promised to the Jews but will be shared in by the Gentiles. It's a kingdom marked by an overwhelming fullness and presence of the Holy Spirit. It's a kingdom where, as we read earlier, the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. It is a kingdom marked by joy. He just told the slaves in the parable, enter into the joy of your master. It is a kingdom marked by a realization of all of the fruit of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians 5. It is a glorious kingdom. And it is a kingdom that will come when Christ returns on earth. And every knee will bow And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. There is much that he has revealed about this kingdom. Here, the important thing is that it is a kingdom that is present with the presence of Christ. A glorious, glorious kingdom. It is a kingdom, and we should note here, that will consist of all of the resurrected saints from the Old Testament. It will consist of all of the resurrected saints that were alive on the earth and those that were taken up who had already died when the Lord returns in 1 Thessalonians 4. It is a kingdom that will consist of all of those who are resurrected that died during the tribulation period. And it is a kingdom that will even consist, this thousand year kingdom, of non-resurrected bodies such as the sheep who are here. These are the ones who are brought into the kingdom in non-resurrection bodies. If we wonder at the end of Revelation chapter 20, where did those come from that rebelled when Satan was released from the pit? It's the offspring of these. These righteous sheep here. And if you think it's odd that there would be resurrected and non-resurrected bodies, we've had a foretaste of this. Christ walked among His disciples for 40 days. Matthew himself is going to tell us in chapter 27 that many were resurrected after Christ was resurrected. In verse 52, the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Here it is that on an even grander scale. It is a majestic and a glorious and a wonderful kingdom. And it's one that we experience in part, but we'll know Fully then. Let's move to the standard of the, the standard of the blessing. The standard, the source is the Father, the substance is the kingdom, and the standard is righteousness. Look at verse 35. I was hungry and you gave me to eat, thirsty you gave me to drink, stranger you invited me in, naked and you clothed me, and so forth. This is then essentially the standard. 
that these are those who manifested or demonstrated the fruit of a regenerate heart, a repentant and a sincere faith in Christ. Note, he is not talking about how those who never heard the gospel can get saved by showing the life of Christ in them by doing good works so they didn't know of him. Believe it or not, there are many who take it that way and not just traditionally liberal theologians. This is not a declaration that there is salvation by works. It's a fruit of a transformed heart. Righteousness is the fruit of a transformed heart. Remember what he said in Matthew chapter 13? Don't turn there. He said this, And the one on whom the seed was sown on good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, and indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. It's the fruit of the repentance that Jesus preached. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is what John the Baptist said when the crowds came to him, that you need to bring forth the fruit of repentance. This is a life that demonstrated the fruit of repentance. Now I want to just very briefly, more briefly than I even have in my notes, but I want to address two errors that are part of this or commonly attached to the Lord's teaching here. And the first is this. The first is the Roman Catholic error that works are a grounds of justification. Works are grounds of justification. The Roman Catholic argument is this, that grace is unmerited and precedes works, but that grace produces works that are meritorious and working along with faith, they merit our salvation. Let me give it to you from the lips of a Catholic theologian, Ludwig Ott. He says this, For the justified, eternal life is both a gift of grace promised by God and a reward for his own good works and merits. Later, he says, For the real achieving of eternal life. Later, the cooperating with grace, even that the justified man can earn merit for others. That's what the church teaches. This is merit. This is merit by grace, but merit nonetheless. If you speak with a Catholic neighbor, not assuming none in here are in this, but if you're here and you're confused on this, you must be clear. It's not something so crass, uh, uh, someone who thinks, understands their theology, that just says, by works we get into heaven. No, they say it is by faith. But it is by faith that they earn merit. That is the confusion. And it confuses the completed and instantaneous act of justification with the inner renewal of sanctification. In other words, it confuses the work of Christ for us with the work of the Spirit in us. And that is important to understand. Many are deceived by that. Justification is an external work of God outside of us being declared legally righteous based on the completed work of Christ. His life, His death, His resurrection. You have been justified by faith. Sanctification is a work of the Spirit in us conforming us to the image of Christ. These go together. There is no justified sinner who is not being made more like Christ, for we have died and risen with Him and walk in newness of life, and yet they are distinct works of God. And to confuse this is to pervert the gospel of grace and misunderstand Jesus' teaching here. 
We must understand that salvation is not simply being justified. That might be a shock to Reformed believers. It's not just being justified. That is at the heart of salvation. But salvation is so much more than that. Salvation is union with Christ. Salvation is regeneration. Salvation is being indwelled by the Holy Spirit. These are new covenant promises. And so salvation will produce a changed life. But those works of a changed life are never the grounds of our acceptance. They are the proof of our acceptance by God. We cannot get those confused. We cannot, as many of our friends and neighbors do. And let me mention this to you because you will be confused on these passages if you do not understand that. Romans chapter 2, he says this, just listen to it. He will render to each person according to his deeds to those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But for those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. He is not saying that those who do more good will get into heaven. He is saying that those who demonstrate the reality of a changed life. He will say right after that, there's no one who does good on their own. There's no one who does righteous. None. It is those who are demonstrating a righteous life. Jesus said in John chapter 5, 29, just listen, that those who did the good deeds to a resurrection in life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of life. That is to say, as Jesus is affirming here, that those who have trusted in Christ will demonstrate righteousness. Those who are yet dead in their sin will not demonstrate righteousness. We'll mention that again, but I want to note a second error. The first is to say that works are grounds of justification. The second is that error of easy believism. That is to say that faith in Christ can fail to produce works. That's the opposite side of the error. Is to say that faith in Christ means that all I have to do is to believe a set of facts about Christ and believing those facts then counts me as one of God's children and I can never lose it. It doesn't matter if I lose that belief later in life. It doesn't matter if I fail to produce righteousness in my life. I'm saved because I have believed on Christ. That is just as equally a damning perversion of the gospel. And Jesus confronts that as well here. The reality is that salvation is a completed work grounded in Christ, the finished work of Christ, but it is granted through faith that believes on the Lord Jesus Christ and serves Him and loves Him, that has a regenerate heart that has seen the glory of Christ and the affections are drawn to Him, that has seen and tasted His glory as Lord and submits the will to Him and to His Word. That's the point. And these are those who have demonstrated that. And so they're called His sheep and they're marked out for works of righteousness. And they are called the righteous ones in verse 37. The righteous will answer. Not the ones who were made righteous by their works, but those who are found righteous in Christ and demonstrated in their own lives. And there's a lot more to say to that, but I want to move on. Let me just simply say this. It's not the one who says that I have come to know him. Can you finish it? 
but the one who keeps his commandments. That's the evidence of being born again, and that's what he's pointing out here. Now let me note a few things about these works then. They are a demonstration then of a transformed life. And they are done, notice, for other Christians. This is not a general kind of a benevolent attitude towards all of the weak and downtrodden in society. He is not encompassing in here specifically, although it's not to say a Christian couldn't do that, but he's not specifically encompassing giving a dollar or a sandwich to the person with a homeless sign on the side of the road. He is specifically talking about that Christian love that is demonstrated among Christians to other Christians. Look at what he says in verse 40. When did we see you sick and so forth? And he says, the king will say, in, the, that you, in as much to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine... Brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. That is a very evidence of saving grace in the heart. 1 John 3.14, just listen. We know that we have passed out of death, that is spiritual death, into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Love among Christians is not an add-on, it's not an extra, it's not something that would just be nice and that we should do. It is the very evidence of life. And if a person does not have a love, a sincere love for other Christians, imperfect, yes, but sincere and real, then in John's own words, that person abides in death. This is why we take it very seriously when someone can happily neglect the fellowship of God's people. That's why we take it very seriously when nobody, if somebody does not have a desire to serve. Why? Because love for the brethren is basic to salvation. It's basic to it. And that's essentially what he's identifying here. Note next that they are sincere. They did it, these works, and they're surprised by them. When did we see you Naked, and when did we see you hungry and thirsty? They didn't realize, even when they were doing it, that this was some kind of merit. They did it out of a sincere expression of faith, to use Peter's words, out of a sincere love for the brethren. But notice this, and this is really the point for us to, to grasp. When these works were done, Christ identifies them as works done to himself. They are works done to Christ. Again, you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Understand this. Inasmuch as a Christian shows love to other Christians, it is showing love to Christ in a very real and in a very personal way. And that is so because of our union with him. Jesus said the same thing to Paul. Do you remember on the Damascus Road, the glorified Christ when he appeared to Paul? And he says in chapter 9... Saul, Saul, what was the rest? Why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting all of those Christians? What did he say? Why are you persecuting me? Me, Paul. Why are you doing that? Those people are my people. That is to say that Christ indwells every believer through the Spirit. It is a personal and an intimate relationship, this union with Christ. 
As a matter of fact, Jesus said back in chapter 10, this is behind his words. He told his disciples, he who receives you receives me. He who receives me receives him who sent me, the father, his father who is in him. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. He who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Love shown to another Christian is love shown to Christ. Because there is a spiritual unity between Christ and the believer that is so intimate and so real that Christ views both acts of sin, persecution, or love and kindness as done to himself. As done to himself. Listen to Calvin's comment. It's worth repeating. He says this. Whenever we are reluctant to assist the poor, let us place before our eyes the Son of God to whom it would be base sacrilege to refuse anything. If we refuse to serve and to express love, particularly to another Christian, we are directly and without question refusing to serve and to love Christ himself. That's the weight that he puts on it here. Notice also, however, the fullness of Christ's love for his own. The fullness of his love for his own. He says, whenever you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren... Christ's love for his own, Christ's love for you and for me is not based on external standards. It's not graded according to our abilities. It's not even graded ultimately to the depth of our faith. It's not. This is a full love. He loves his own because the Father has given them to him. Because he purchased them equally by his own death. He was with the disciples in John 13, all of them at different levels of faith and commitment to Christ. And yet he washed all of their feet because he loved his own and he loved them to the end. And so it is with all of those who are truly his children. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And he says he's not, these aren't just a reward for the great that you served, but for all of them, even the least of them. And this is not a distant truth. Paul makes his argument based on the same idea. Hey, whoever is the least among you, give them more honor. They are loved by Christ and important to the growth of the body in the same way. They are heirs of grace. They are children of the King. And they have Christ in them. And so we are to love them equally. That means Christ died for the struggling Forgotten, ignoble, and weak believer, the same as for the honored, the esteemed, and the strong believer, both are partakers of grace, both are loved by Christ, and get this, all are to be equally loved by God's children, by Christians. It is of a most egregious and offensive sin for us to make distinctions that Christ does not make. To love another Christian more because of who they are or what advantage we can gain from them. We love them because they are Christ. That's why we love them. Because Christ is in them. And we should treat them equally with the same amount of love. And that's what he points out here. Even to the least, even to the one easily forgotten, was just as much done to me an act of Christian love as it was to the most prominent and celebrated to not have this love, again, 
They do not even have the burden, the compulsion of this love as poorly as we may express it sometimes is to fail to demonstrate the life of Christ in us. I want to quickly move to this last section, but I want to read one verse to you along these lines. You can just mark it down. It's in 1 John chapter 4. He makes this same statement. We know love by this, verse 16, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Whoever has the world's good and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed or truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth and we will assure our hearts before him. Christian love is not a nicety. It is the very evidence of life. I would pray that I would grow in this love and that we as a people would be marked by this love for one another. Now let's move to the last here. That's a pronouncement of blessing on this point. But next, and in the backdrop of this glorious scene, this wonderfully tender words to his own, this tremendous kindness and grace, we have next in a pronouncement of judgment. A pronouncement of judgment. He says to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. This is devastating. Absolutely devastating. And it's, and it's all the more devastating because as these nations are equally gathered before Christ, these who hear these words, Depart from me, accursed ones, had just heard the words, Enter into the kingdom that has been inher- you've inherited, that has been granted to you from the Father, from the foundation of the world, those blessed of my Father. And now, having heard those words to the others, they hear to themselves, Depart from me. Depart from me. These are the cursed. These have not God's blessing, but God's judgment pronounced on them. These are the evil slave of Matthew 24, 48. These are the five foolish virgins of Matthew chapter 25. These are the wicked and the lazy slave of Matthew 25, 26. It certainly includes those who had some outside form of religion, but they had denied its power. And now their lack of spiritual power and spiritual life is exposed dramatically for all to see. Now it has been noted that in the past that one of the most devastating realities of hell is forever being removed from the presence of God in the sense of his goodness. Paul says that, forever removed from the presence of God, 2 Thessalonians 1.9. But as we noted before, there is a presence of God in hell. It is a presence of God to judge, a presence of God to cause misery. It is the presence of a holy and a just judge against sin. We read about that in Revelation 14. And here it's those who would not receive and respond to the gift of his grace will now be banished from him forever. Let's notice a few things about this quickly here. First is this. The wrath of his presence is described as being into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And just notice this. Christ is Lord of heaven and earth, of death and life, of eternal life and eternal death. This is the Christ that we know, beloved. 
He is the glorious king. He's just utterly destroyed all of his enemies, thrown Antichrist into the abyss. He has sovereignly ushered in his own eternal kingdom. And now with that same authority, banishes the wicked from his presence into judgment. This is a sovereign king who has received all judgment from the Father. And I would venture to say this is not the Christ who is so often preached in many churches. He is a sovereign Christ. He is king. He is king to bless and he is king to judge. And he will do both. And if Christ is not preached in his fullness, the full implications of his being Lord and Savior, people will come to trust in a Christ other than the Christ here in Matthew 25. And they will have a salvation that is not a salvation that will bring them into the kingdom. Now notice here, hell is particularly a place then of immense and eternal suffering. They are cast into the fire, into the eternal fire. Jesus has already described this place in a variety of ways. The outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, the place of torment, the smoke of their torment goes up, of a place where their worm does not die. But the most prominent image in our mind is that of a lake of fire, and here eternal fire. Now it's debated whether fire is literal or metaphorical. I tend to lean more towards the literal side, but in either case, in either case, it is a picture of immense suffering, of anguish and pain and unending misery. It is an external misery that is endured in a physical and a resurrected body unto judgment. A body that is designed specifically to endure the judgment that God has designed for the unbelieving, to bear eternal suffering. It's an internal misery of an accusing conscience, missed opportunity, scorned grace, and likely that same misery of an unremitted hatred toward a holy God who has assigned them to a place of such suffering as they endure His holy wrath. And yet, as much as that is true, the greatest internal suffering will come not from these things, but from a very small, but an overwhelmingly profound adjective. What is it? It is the eternal fire. That's the true misery of hell. The suffering is immense. The suffering is great. But most importantly, it is a suffering that will never know a lessening or a relief. It will only continue as it is forever. And in fact, there is a sense in which the misery will only increase because as the thought of suffering is only met with its unending nature, it will only compile on more grief at the thought of forever being excluded from God's grace. Particularly after having had the chance to do so. There's a small foretaste of this in Revelation 9 when he sends out the demons and he says men will long to die but he won't allow them to. Those men will eventually die, but in hell, men will long to die, to go out of existence, but he will not allow them to. It will continue that way forever. And the thought of eternity, the thought of it never ending, only adds to the misery. Notice then also about this place. It is a place that was prepared for the devil and his angels. They are called his angels because he rules over them. He is chief among them. These are those who fell with him. Revelation 12 in his rebellion to God. 
Now consider this. Satan's judgment then was prepared for him since the fall, since he fell, since he first rebelled against God. And he knows it is there. He knows it is waiting for him. If you remember Jesus in his ministry while on earth, the demons came up and they said to him, Have you come to torment us before the time? What time? The time of judgment. They knew that it was coming. It was described and is described in Revelation where the place of the false prophet and the beast are, Revelation 19 and 20. In fact, it's even possible that Satan and the demons even now can see the place where they will be thrown into judgment. And the implication in Revelation 9 is that there may be some demons who are already there being kept to be released during the time of the tribulation. Now, while the lake of fire is specifically a place of torment to be experienced later, there is a present suffering of the wicked described as fire. As the details can't be pressed too far, but we may have an indication of this in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. He says, the flame, I can't bear it. Let Lazarus come and just dip some water on my tongue. And the answer is no, that can never happen. There can be no relief. There is a chasm that cannot be crossed. There is a judgment that you must endure. Notice this also, that the suffering of Satan will be shared by all of his spiritual children. That is, those who are the fruit of his deception will participate with him in his judgment. As God has children, Satan has children. If you remember, even as far back as Genesis 3.15, he says, there's your seed and there is his seed. There are two seeds. There are two spiritual children on the earth. In John 8.44, he says, you are of your father, the devil. In 1 John 3.10, he says, you are children of the devil who are not been born again. In Ephesians 2, it's the Spirit who is at work in the sons of disobedience. It's, it's a place prepared for Satan, but it's also a place where all of his children will be with him. All of his spiritual children, deceived by him. And Satan's hatred for God is carried over to his hatred for those made in his image. Satan comes as a friend and a helper... Paul says Satan comes as a deceiver into the church and he appears as an angel of light. But what his goal is, is to destroy. To destroy. To bring others to share in his destruction. And some can understand that Satan being judged or even demons, but they say, but men too, men who were deceived, would share in that same judgment and punishment as the evil one himself. And the answer is yes, because Just as the devil himself, these are those who refused to do the hard work of repentance and to follow Christ. They then are following in their father's footsteps. They share in his rebellion, they share in his nature, and they share then in his judgment. Let me point out one great tragedy here for these goats. And it's this, in light of that. And I'll end with this. For these goats, it did not need to be that way. It didn't need to be that way. These are those who knew of Christ and his salvation. In Hebrews chapter 2, when Satan and the angels fell, he says, He does not, God does not give help to the devil. He doesn't give him help. He gives help to the descendants of Abraham. In other words, when the angels fell, that was it. But to men, he gives the opportunity of 
repentance. It is in flesh and blood that Christ came, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, namely the devil. And it is to men that he offers salvation. And it is likely that very offer of salvation that Peter talks about when he says angels long to look into this. They long to understand it. None of their brethren received the opportunity for forgiveness, but the children of Adam did in a second Adam. Satan has no choice but to suffer, but men are presented with the opportunity for forgiveness to inherit the kingdom. And so to have had that opportunity, and yet in the words of Stephen in Acts 7, to have always resisted the Holy Spirit and to suffer eternally is devastating. And look at the grounds of their judgment. What was the mark of their rejection? It wasn't some great sin. We're not talking about the judgment that came from these great acts of evil. It was simply this. A failure to demonstrate a transformed life. By failing to keep Christ's commandments and to obey Him, in this case, in loving His suffering people. Essentially, there was no love for Christ. There was no desire to keep His commandments. No desire to serve Him in life. No special care or love for His people. And if they did not obey and do the will of the Father in this area, it means it's ultimately then what marked their inner life, depart, uh, despite what was they did on the outside. And so then they will be placed by the King into either eternal punishment or those that did trust in Christ to eternal life eternal life. And beloved, as we mentioned at the close last week, these are the only two places. There is no middle ground. You either have death working in you, spiritual death, or you have spiritual life. There is no middle ground. There is no wait for tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. So the question is, do you have this life in you? Have you experienced the saving grace of Christ? If you have, do you long for this return? And do you live in the light of His glory and His kingdom? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You have told us these things. The very darkness of judgment is yet a mercy because You've told us. And in a sense... By telling us, you're saying, don't go there. Realize your end if you are rejecting my grace and the work of repentance. But for those in whom you have given life, who have repented of their sin, who have trusted in Christ, there is for us here a great word of encouragement. Nothing lost in this world is even worthy in the words of Paul to be compared with the glory that we will share with you in eternity. Will you open our eyes and increase the taste and the sense and the understanding of that future glory ever more as we spend time in your word and in prayer and serving you in this world? Increase our affections for those things which are eternal by increasing our affections for Christ and that we would live more completely for you. Do this by your grace. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.